Okay, today my guest is Professor Mila Lazarova. I'll keep my introduction uh, short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Mila as a person, Professor Lazarova as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very uh, brief snapshot. Professor Lazarova holds the Canada Research Chair in Global Work Workforce Management. She received the 2019 Globe Best Research Paper Award, the 2017 Emerald Literati Network Award for Excellence, 2011 International Human Resource Scholarly Research Award from the AOM, and the 2010 Carolyn Dexter Best International Paper Award, again from AOM. Uh, she just recently received the 2020 IM Division Best Paper in OBHR OT Award, and Mila is active in the AOM and AIB. She has held uh, various positions as chair, track chair, uh, member. She sits or sat on the editorial boards of HRM Journal, International Journal of Cross-Cultural Management, International Journal of Human Resource Management, Journal of Global Mobility, JIBS, and Journal of World Business. Thank you, Mila, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Mila, what did you want to become when you were a child? I don't have exact recollections. Uh, my mom tells me I used to say that I would either be a teacher or a hairdresser. And that last <laughs> bit is completely strange to me because I've never since ever had a desire to be a hairdresser. Uh, but uh, I did want to do something that involved travel. And that was quite unique to the circumstances because I'm Bulgarian and I grew in a place that was very closed off to the world. So travel was like the forbidden fruit. So I was always quite curious of what's behind the wall, literally and figuratively. So uh, you, you were living in Bulgaria and then you, when was the first time you came across uh, different cultures or uh, realized that there was an international world out there? Well, I guess it was from a rather early age. Uh, as I said, it was a very bizarre place to grow up, a great place to grow up, but also you knew that the world, there were differences around the world. There was the West and there was the East. Uh, so we couldn't really travel. When you're a Bulgarian, you needed an exit visa to exit the country. That's before you ever get an entry visa to another country. So I remember being quite uh, envious and sad and mad when my parents traveled to Hungary and they kind of had to leave me as a collateral because otherwise they wouldn't let people travel. So I had that awareness that there was something bigger outside and I was curious about it. I didn't know if it was better or worse, but it was just different. And I've always wanted to, to be able to go there. And I was lucky. I'm probably among the luckiest generations because I um, grew up in a place that was quite stable. I received great education. And just as I started, just as I was becoming an adult, the world opened up for me. And then I was able to travel and find out about all these places by myself. Um, so in a way, I was, I was quite lucky that way. Uh, but cultural differences per se, not until I started doing it myself, not until I traveled to the U.S. How did you choose academia? It chose me. Um, when I was in Bulgaria, I did a degree in international business. It was sort of like a MBA with an IB profile. And as I was studying, I almost on a bet applied for a scholarship 
sponsored by Open Society by George Soros and uh, ended up at Duke University. Uh, and I spent a year there as an exchange student. And then I thought, oh, that's a really fascinating world. Education is quite different, or at least was quite different. I hear things have changed quite a bit in Bulgaria in terms of how it's delivered, in terms of how professors relate to students, in terms of assignments, uh, in terms of semesters. And I really quite liked the US and I liked the freedom uh, of um, interacting with people. The, uh, you know, it wasn't as structured. You take a bunch of lectures and then you deliver that back to the professor. And I thought maybe I'd like to do that. Uh, it was a limited term scholarship. So at the end of it, I had to go back to Bulgaria. That was part of the condition of the scholarship that you go back and sort of spread the word. Um, and then I thought I really would like to go back to the US. And then somebody said, why don't you apply to a PhD program? And I did, not fully realizing what I was getting myself into. <laughs> so I uh, was accepted at a few uh, programs, uh, chose the one at Rutgers, and it wasn't until midway through my first semester when I went, oh, so that's what a PhD is like. Uh, I was lucky there was a good fit, but it could have turned out very ugly indeed. So <laughs> it was really more by hapsiness. There was no grand reason when I went into it. I wanted to study more and learn more and be in the U.S. About uh, the Open Society, are, are you still involved? Uh, are you participating in their activities? Are, are you being a speaker, like a showcase? Uh, look, this is what happens if you stick to it type of a thing. Not very much anymore. Uh, and I think things have changed with them, right? Things have been quite restructured. Uh, there was an office in New York that used to run that particular scholarship. We do have a network of alumni. I did a piece of research many years ago uh, where we talked to sort of the, the alumni of the people, past recipients of the scholarship. Um, and that was quite interesting. But over over the years, these links have deteriorated. I still keep in touch with a few people, but not really. Okay. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. <laughs> uh, I am married to the same man three times. And that's <laughs> all due to very differences in laws and contextual <laughs> rules. Uh, so we first married in City Hall in New York. Uh, because we needed to do that to get his Canadian visa. It turns out that marriage wasn't illegal in Bulgaria, so we had to do it again. And then for something else, it turned out that whatever thing you do in a church in Bulgaria is not legal in front of the city hall, so we had to do it again. So as my parents say, we hope you never divorce that guy because it would be logistically very, very complicated. That's funny. Uh, if you stopped being an academic today, uh, and you know, think about a different career path, a second alternative path, uh, well, what would this be? Well, it depends. If I were to indulge my passions without thinking about anything else but what I want, I'll probably do something in the arts. Like I would do a degree in art history and I'll be a curator in a museum or I'll learn to be an art critic or a theater critic. I, I, I quite love the arts. I'm not very good at them, but I enjoy them. But if I think about sort of broader purpose, something maybe helping immigrants and refugees would be where I think I could be good at and I could sort of apply myself in and feel like I'm actually contributing to something larger than tickling my intellectual curiosity. So if you get me on a selfish day, I'll go with the first choice. 
if you get me on a day when I, I sort of think about the world, I'll probably give you the second choice. Interesting. Um, regrets, have you got any regrets? That's, a, that's a, a question that I quite enjoy listening your other interviewers reply to. Um, not, not big ones, uh, like there wasn't anything in my life that I'd like to dial back on and be like, I wish I did that again. Regret is also a very heavy word for me. It's not, I am really sorry that such and such paper didn't get accepted. Of course, I have many of those, uh, you know, sort of things where I failed professionally. Uh, it's more, the biggest regret is probably being unable to control myself because I do, I do uh, tend to fall into the not very healthy pattern of uh, getting into what ifs. What if I went to European university? What if I went to a more research intense institution? What if I had another child? Uh, and it's sort of the, I think about the road not taken and I regret that because it's not very productive. Uh, you know, it's best to make best of what you can and what you have rather than think about what could have been. So that's just a personal failing of mine. So I don't know if it's a regret but I guess I regret I do that. And then there's a lot of little things, you know, that I'm like, I wish I'd done it differently, but regret has this very heavy meaning for me, you know? So not in that sense. But what's fascinating is people uh, in these interviews, when they say, you know, I have no regrets, I don't like to think about regret. The, the way that they reason it is so clear, so crisp. Because I do have a lot of regrets. I do think, how, how can a person not have any regret? But I'm trying to understand the, the logic, the, the reasoning behind people saying they cannot have any regret because um, the way that they reason it's so, so fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, well, what, what's the biggest, uh, what was the big uh, failure? Something that taught you something? I mean, every failure teaches you something, I, uh, or at least if you're smart, you learn from it. Um, so I've been, I've been very lucky with my career, with the people I've worked. Uh, and I don't think something like um, a paper not being accepted or a project not going through is, uh, is something to regret right? It's something you learn from. So don't work with that person ever again. Or if you go into that journal, this is how you do things. If you are advising a PhD student, here are some things you do and you don't do. Because like most people, uh, I fall into the faulty thinking that everybody should be like me. So I approach them as if they're me, but people come into a supervising relationship from, a, they may be very different, have very different expectations. Uh, and not sitting down and talking about it. So I've sort of made some errors there. Uh, but I, I think it's more of a, um, you live and learn, like live and learn, as opposed to something that I deeply, profoundly think I messed up. And maybe this is just me self being selfish and unaware. <laughs> maybe if you talk to some of the people that have worked with me, uh, they would tell you otherwise. But uh, I don't... Uh, and again, it's not that I'm not sorry about certain things. It could be a language issue as well. Some of our colleagues that study language would tell you that um, the sort of certain things uh, are perceived differently. And just, as I said, like the word regret is just very heavy for me. Hmm. What are you most proud of? Um, perhaps managing to craft a career 
that's perhaps not super conventional, not very much by the book. Um, I've dipped into so many topics to ever be considered an expert in X or Y, uh, but a career that I've been able to sustain over two decades and counting, um, working with people from around the world, relationships that I've forged, very interesting topics that I've gotten into, um, and having a blast, right? I work a lot and I'm very tired most of the time, but other than that, I'm having a blast. I'm actually enjoying uh, my, my work life. And that can be said about everybody. So yes, uh, there's you know, an AMR paper or a GIPS paper that, I, that I'm quite proud of in that sense. Uh, but in terms of overall accomplishment so far, uh, it's just being able to forge a path that, that makes me really happy. Interesting. There's always one more paper to write. It's always this paper. You know, some, some people can't even enjoy the ones that they have uh, scored, that they have uh, under their belts, because there's another one in the pipeline, uh, maybe in the second round, third round. It's a continuous but battle. I think it's important to celebrate those. And I do make a conscious effort to do that. It doesn't have, have to be anything big, uh, but, you know, you buy a bottle of uh, good wine and have it with your partner or, you know, take a colleague to lunch um, because it, yes, I mean, life is work never ends. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I keep going, oh, this week is very busy, but next week, you know, as soon as this project's over, I'm going to have some time to think about this. That day never comes. There's always something that comes along, right? It's a review, it's a paper, it's a student. So you need to consciously take the moments and pause, even if it's just for an evening. You know, I, I find that, I find that quite healthy. Perfect. About uh, research, let's uh, switch to research. How do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly? Um, and mm -hmm. why is your work important? I mean, I think like probably some of my micro colleagues have said the same. Uh, basically, in the broadest sense, it would be helping individuals navigate the world of living, working, and playing with people that are different from themselves, uh, helping organizations overcome the visible and invisible challenges of managing people around the world and harnessing the opportunities that such contextually complicated world and diverse people can give them, right? So I've done some research both in terms of individuals and in terms of organizations. So how do you navigate the global workforce. I mean, that's very broad. I don't know if that kind of gets at it. And then if people are curious and ask me questions, I can tell them more. What are some of the omitted variables, neglected areas of research in IB? Things that we have done uh, a little bit, but maybe uh, they, they need to be re-emphasized or reconsidered. I think it's a constantly evolving, um, it's a constantly evolving landscape. And I think the last few years have given us a lot of new things to think about and do. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, sort of what, how does a 
multinational navigate this world, you know, this uh, national sort of the push towards nationalism and what, what that would mean for globalization kind of on the more macro level. On the more micro level, I think it's a fascinating world of opportunity now. Uh, I've done a lot of my research in global mobility. Uh, so how does mobility look like in a world that's closed off? How is trust built when you never meet colleagues? You know, we used to say that that's pretty critical. How do you build social capital over Zoom? How do you have uh, people working on teams that never see each other? Um, so how do you build organizational culture in a very dispersed world, even within a country, but also outside of a country? So I think this pandemic and the social and political changes even preceding the pandemic that have uh, created a great mix for us. So uh, there's so many things to pick from. I don't think that, uh, I think we need to be respectful Respectful of resources happened in the past, but also not hold it on a pedestal. And I think when we reevaluate re past research, we must be both understand like when did research take place? Oftentimes you see people write about a piece of research that was created in the 80s and they'll criticize the heck out of it because it's not methodologically complicated enough or it didn't consider this or that. I mean, and that's fair. But you have to be contextually cognizant, you know, this was back in the 80s when we knew these things, but we didn't know these things we had when we had certain methodological approaches that didn't exist then that exist now. So you take it for what it can offer and run with it, but don't try to bury it and said it's just horrible, horrible research. I'm sure there are instances where uh, things must be revisited, but I kind of find that sometimes uh, especially younger scholars that haven't been in the field for so long, find it super easy to criticize old research and think they're doing something that nobody else has done prior to them, where it's really a lot of things they can learn from past research and integrate on their work moving forward, that they're just like, oh, that's from 1982. Whoever cares about that? <laughs> yeah, then you must don't even read that anymore. Yeah, so, uh, exactly. Um, about uh, state of idle curiosity, about creativity and the mind wandering uh, to come up with an interesting research topic, new new questions. How, how, what's the process for you? How, how does your thinking work? Well, it's, and again, that's when sort of going back to the question of uh, what am I proud just off and then maybe perhaps that is can sometimes on some days could uh, uh, could be a regret for me uh it happens organically for me so i started working on expatriation and from that i came into work-life balance issues and from that i came into career management issues and from that i moved into career careers more generally and careers in a comparative sense uh, then it's through expatriation that you started thinking a little bit about organizational strategy and staffing strategy, and then standardization and localization of practices. And then from that point, thinking about the role of context, thinking about how multinationals can influence context and not really it's sort of the leverage that they had to fit or not fit it in a context. So it has really evolved and I was just in a conversation earlier today where people were talking about forging a very strong research identity and how some scholars feel very strongly. You have to pick a field. 
Okay, so you're the person that is, you know, South Korean multinationals and investment, for example, right? And you basically play in your lane, run in your lane, uh, and that's how you maximize um, uh, your accomplishments, you know, sort of your, your, your publications are streamlined. Uh, you don't have to find everything about the, a new area of research every time you write a paper. And I think it's fantastic for those people that can do it. Uh, I have meandered. I have meandered a lot and that has made life very difficult for me uh, because uh, it takes me a while to understand uh, something about a field. We just did a paper, for example, we had to learn a lot about labor economics because it was quite relevant to what I was doing. Uh, but that's what keeps my mind interested, right? Rather than reading the same paper over and over again. It's not necessarily most productive for my career. And I'm lucky enough now to be at a stage of my career when I can afford that but I was always like that. So um, you find a nugget in a paper and you take it and run with it. And wonderful things can happen, but it's not free. It comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of not being particularly focused. So it's a bit of give and take. It works for me. It doesn't mean it's gonna work for everybody. So you mentioned labor economics and learning something new so that you can write and contribute to our field. So the, about interdisciplinary research or multidisciplinary research, uh, what's your take on it um, for the field? Um, uh, do we need, for, for example, in international insurance, uh, do we need more psychology or uh, are we supposed to be more focused? I don't want to uh, say, you know, one, one model is better than the other one, but uh, there are some advantages, disadvantages to it, mm -hmm. especially for a field like ours, which is maturing, but also the, the questions are changing quite rapidly, you know, and then the issue becomes what is important, what is recent, what is mm -hmm. uh, uh, valuable uh, to, to study. What's your take on interdisciplinary research? I mean, I think uh, it's easier said than done. That's one thing to bear in consideration. Uh, and I think it's necessary. I think it's absolutely necessary uh, because the world is far more complex than arrows and boxes, right? There's a lot, and especially in IB. I mean, a lot about IB is about the context and how context can change everything. Uh, so some pairings are more natural. So HR and psychology or, you know, HR and sociology, uh, then HR and medicine, for example. Uh, but I just uh, worked on a paper with uh, Helen Cherry, a, a colleague and a great friend of mine, that looked at mobility and occupational health and safety, where we dipped into many of the journals that are from medicine or, um, or health, occupational health and safety research. Uh, and we found out that when we were trying to code things, it was so incredibly difficult because the terms that they were using were quite different. We wrote the paper, I'm very proud of it, one of my uh, recent accomplishments that I'm quite proud of. Uh, and it was a very interesting exercise just to see that different fields look at the world with different glasses. Uh, and if you have to be pragmatic about it, uh, again, it's probably something one does uh, once you've secured your tenure and your position, but in a way, even saying that, I want to pinch myself a little bit because I think if you approach the world understanding that it's not just your narrow field, the potential for contribution is so much greater, right? So uh, the short answer to your question is yes, it's needed. 
but it's also difficult and you must be mindful of that. How, how do you deal with the referees and uh, associate editors uh, who are, let's say they are not used to entertaining interdisciplinary papers. They would like to think in terms of their field, their area, their uh, citations, their journal citations. Mm -hmm. uh, how that, how, how's that, how does that paper, occupational health and safety paper, um, play out the, the, the review process how, how do you manage that well we had uh, lovely editors and and, and reviewers uh, but uh, to answer so we didn't actually struggle uh, all that much and I mean it's also the uh, that's something often gets said in uh, PDWs and professional development workshops for younger scholars you need to know the conversation you're joining and you need to frame the paper for the conversation you're joining. So we framed it for people that do work on global work and mobility and we use the terminology. So it was on us to sort of translate research so that it is uh, palatable to people that work in that area. So I think you, are, you need to decide how to frame your paper and frame it as such. I think what helps me is my own work as an editor. Uh, so as, as an author, editors are your friend. You often don't realize that. And I realized that once I was walking in these shoes, editors try to accept papers. As an editor, you try to find something good in a paper and make it come to fruition. So I think it's okay to write a letter to the editor and approach them and say, that's an unusual paper. We integrate perspective from such and such discipline, uh, maybe suggest a reviewer from that discipline. Um, and uh, it's on you to sell the paper, right? Uh, but, and I guess I know it sort of a bit later in the conversation, you ask about advice, but that's a piece of advice that uh, I've, I've come to realize through my own, uh, through my own work. Editors are your friend. You mentioned you were uh, active for the past 20 or more than 20 years. Uh, in your opinion, what's the progress? What is the process of the evolution in the fields from where we were uh, and uh, where are we headed to? in your opinion, what's the evolution? I think I've seen a lot more diversity, not in terms of diversity, the topic of diversity, but diversity of scholars, diversity of perspectives. Uh, it's no longer dominated uh, by uh, scholars from um, Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, a diversity of methodological approaches. So in sort of the more micro, uh, um, topics. There's been a lot of qualitative research. Um, there have been topics that previously were not considered to be within the domain of international business, like language. I'm fascinated by work on language. I don't do that myself. I just read the papers with great interest in uh, language and identity and how that influences how people work in a team or work in a multinational company. So I've seen broadening perspectives in every and any possible way. Uh, and I'm finding that refreshing. On the downside, um, and again, downside from a pragmatic standpoint, there is so much out there on any topic now. If you uh, Google almost scholar, Google scholar almost any topic, you're gonna see exponential growth in you know, looking in so many of the things that we write about. So, trying to figure out what part of that you must read and what part of that you can leave aside. 
um, is can be challenging. Uh, but I think it's uh, much more colorful out there in every possible sense. Uh, Mila, uh, when you were going through the program, PhD program yourself, uh, who was your mentor, advisor who had the most influence on you? Uh, my advisor was one of your, a person you interviewed uh, on, on this, Apollo Calgary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what was the best advice you received from her? Um, everything about Paula is wonderful. I think the best thing she did was treating me as a colleague in training from day one in the PhD program. So it wasn't a PhD student you give tasks to. I was somebody that is doing her job, but isn't an apprentice. Uh, so I was always trusted with things that I was like, really? Like, I can do that? And it is that trust in me and that belief that I can do these things that made me who I am. So she gave me wings, you know, uh, and uh, I found working with her fantastic. But it's it was just that, yeah, of course you could do it. Yes, I know. Let's collaborate on that paper. I we wrote the, the the first paper I published. It was in my first year of my PhD program. Uh, and I thought, you know, I'd take a while to to earn that. Uh, but um, she she made it happen. And later, I mean, it, she's still uh, very much a mentor and by now a dear friend. Uh, I go to her uh, for advice. Um, you know, I'm applying for promotion. Who are people you think I should, uh, you know, we should, I should put on my list of potential reviewers or I'm dealing with such and such issue. What would be a good way to do that? A great piece of advice she gave me was about imposter syndrome. I hadn't heard about that. And as I was getting my first job, she talked to me about imposter syndrome and I'm glad she did because I do often feel like an imposter. And then I stopped myself and I said, but that's okay. She also taught me about women and negotiating salaries because we're not that good at that. So I used that advice because I was negotiating my uh, my first salary. So, uh, uh, yeah, just overall. Uh, but we have a relationship that spanned well past my PhD program. Interesting. Um, which skills were most difficult to develop over time? Uh Personally, for me, the skill that I have not kept up, and I regret, there you go, now I have a regret for you. I have not kept up with the world methodologically. As you know, it has exploded with, um, you know, innovations in terms of method. Uh, and I was very good at it until I wasn't. And as you become a bit more senior and start working with students, they become better at the newest and the greatest method and you kind of put that aside, or I did. And then after a while, you've fallen off the train a little bit. So I do my best to make up. I you know, do Statistical Horizon seminars or courses, and I read up, and, but I can never quite get up to speed. And I do find that as a limitation of my work, um, even as a reviewer, as an editor. Sometimes I'm not entirely sure if what I'm reading is correct. Uh, so I'm finding that challenging. So my personal challenge is that I, not by design, not by plan, just by being overworked and worrying about other things, I kind of fell on the method train and I would uh, caution others against it uh, because that's a very transferable skill uh, and you, you do need that. So again, I'm trying, I'm trying to stay, uh, but it's very difficult. Uh, so very few people are uh, up to date on the methods, actually. 
especially at the very, very top level of the field, uh, very few people. Um, yeah, I mean, I've found that I'm good with sort of theory building and, you know, people sort of use me in the best sense when we collaborate for that. Uh, when you, and you can't do everything, right? I mean, there's only 24 hours in the day. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think I let it go a bit, a bit, deteriorate <laughs> yeah, a bit too far. It's about dedic uh, dedicating enough or an, an amount of time every day or every week for learning a new method or learning the code in Stata. And there are, uh, you know, discussion boards in Stata that the people talk about, you know, this is the way that you do it. This is the structure of the database. This is how it should look like. These are the secrets uh, mm -hmm. to how to do it. It actually takes a lot of time. I mean, I, I still uh, keep up with it because I think it's important. Yeah. But it, it takes a couple of days a week uh, to yeah. keep it up. Um, about uh, the common mistakes that you see across across uh, junior faculty or PhD students that uh, you would say, don't do it. You know, these are the common mistakes uh, people do. What are some of the mistakes that you see uh, mm -hmm. common among them? Well, I've referred to one already, which is uh, thinking that their topic is something completely new and unique and not looking for links with the past literature and some impatience. There's a bit of impatience to get stuff out. And especially early on, I think you owe it to yourself and to the field to understand the, the, the foundations. Uh, that's part of the point of being in grad school, having the, the time to read on things. Um, also kind of putting the honest on the, on, the, on the reviewers and the readers to understand why something is important. I'm amazed how even, uh, I mean, it's not just junior scholars, you know, sort of the importance of writing a good introduction and answering the so what question. Like not all of us are very good at framing a paper in a way that we, we explain the so what question. Um, I think uh, that's, that's an issue uh, that I've seen sort of happen consistently. Um, yeah, I guess that would probably be the one thing that, that I've seen consistently happen. Uh, Mila, what's the question that I should have asked you but haven't? I don't know, something more frivolous, like what three people, dead or alive, you can invite to dinner and that have a conversation. My, that, that was a question in my oral exam, in, in comp exam. Uh, actually, my econ professor asked me that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what did you say? Uh, they asked me six people. And they said six people from different fields and you're going to entertain them. We have to give them a research question. And then they gave me an assignment actually. It was a two day uh, comprehensive exam, oral exam. Uh, I needed to write a letter to someone I admired. And uh, I wrote a letter to John Nash. And uh, I spent easy 10 days writing that letter. Oh. Uh, so pick an idol, pick a person that you admire the most, that you haven't met before, and you got only one chance to make a fool of yourself, and <laughs> uh, you're going to ask a research question to a person, and I picked John Nash, because I was really into Nash, Nash equilibrium at the time. That was the most difficult letter I've ever written in my life. How do you impress John Nash, who has done everything, who has seen everything, he's mm -hmm. clearly superior to you in faculties, 
um, yeah, I answered that question in my company exam. So here you go. Um, who are the three people that you would invite for a dinner party to entertain? And what would you talk about them uh, or with them? Well, I mean, but this would be sort of non-academic, right? So I, uh, I mean, I could think about it academically, but it, it, if you, again, sort of indulge more, my more frivolous side, okay. I'm going to say, uh, I mean, just uh, uh, Stephen Sondheim just died uh, and I'm quite fascinated by his music and his musical. So I'd invite him, even though I probably make a fool of myself because I'm not that versed in this. I'll invite uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda because he just exudes energy. And again, it's, I want to hear about how he approaches his music and the world. Maybe, I don't know, like a Noel Coward, like a playwright that writes about, uh, uh, you know, sort of irony in a fantastic way. So that's my mood today, right? So I think on different days, I may give you a different answer. It's the end of a long semester. It's the middle of a very long pandemic. So I need some lightness. So currently, I think that would be my guest list. But uh, in a couple of months, it could be you know, quite more uh, intellectually heavy. I'm, I'm curious, do you entertain, I mean, b- before the pandemic, do you, you did you used to uh, entertain people, uh, collect these, uh, not eccentric, but uh, different people? Uh, uh, not so much, but not because of lack of desire to do so. It's simply the environment I'm in. Uh, I think over... Um, ever since I've, been, since I've been in Vancouver, a bit less so. It's just uh, the, the university itself is, uh, it's not a very well, I mean, it's a lot of fantastic people. So in small batches, yes, in small batches, but not in a big raucous dinner party with people swinging with cocktail glasses. Plus real estate in Vancouver is extremely expensive. So uh, you don't get to have a big house to entertain. But in an ideal world, that would be fantastic. Then you would be invited. Perfect. Academy of Management is in Vancouver. I'm looking forward yeah, to uh, it. I, well, it we missed one, unfortunately. You know, two years ago, it would have been in Vancouver. That's right. True. Yeah. So hopefully in a few years. Hopefully. Um, after the pandemic, hopefully. Uh, Mila, thank you so much for your time. This was very interesting. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thanks. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it.